My name is David Erickson. I'm a longtime member of the church. It's a real privilege to bring you God's word this morning. We are continuing our series, Making Much of Jesus, and today our topic is leisure. So leisure, what is a distinctively, is there such a thing as a distinctively Christian approach to leisure? How does a Christian's leisure show God's glory to a watching world? So let's start with just a definition. If you go look up in any dictionary, leisure is free time. So it's, you know, it's time that you have no obligations. Time you get to choose to do what you want to do. So then I thought, okay, you get assigned a topic. The first thing you're going to do is whip out your Bible app, look up the word leisure, see what it says. And this is the only verse <laughs> that uses the word leisure in the ESV. Mark 6, 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Oh, no, we're, you know, it's like, what am I going to do? But um, so fortunately, the, the, the word that, underli uh, that underlies leisure in the original language uh, is also translated uh, spending time, having opportunity. It occurs in a few other places. And the Bible has a lot to say about freedom, a lot to say about how we use our time. So I think we're going to be okay. Uh, just put it in a little context, uh, we've, had, uh, we've heard sermons on work, you know, what, what, how we work matters to God, and we've heard uh, sermons on rest. We are finite beings. We just, you know, you work your, you work your hardest and you run out of steam. You have got to stop and, re and recover and uh, uh, recharge. So leisure is different from these. Obviously, it's different from work, but I'd like to make a distinction even from rest. So after all the work is done, and even after you've rested and recovered, it turns out you still have some time. We have an abundance of time. Some of us have just a little free time. Some of us have more. But it's time that you get to choose what you want to do. So just to define it just a little bit more, away from the dictionary, just into real life, I thought, you know what? I'm going to think about 10 things I did in my free time last week. So here's what I did. I did some reading. Uh, not, no, uh, not, not much of a surprise. I finished a book called uh, The Gospel by Ray Ortland. It's great, a small book, very good. It's about um, how gospel doctrine creates gospel culture in the church. Highly recommend it. Uh, I went dancing with my wife. So uh, uh, we, we, go, we started this just a couple years ago. We went to Sway Ballroom just right across the, in the strip mall over there. And it's really great. Like, we have fun. Uh, we learned, uh, this week we learned some, well, we worked on Foxtrot and tried to iron out some problems in our salsa. We had a great time. Uh, I went to the men's, Bi I go to a men's Bible study on Friday morning, and we're studying the Psalms. It is such an encouraging time, week in and week out, to hear other men talk about, you know, if you go read it yourself, you get a certain amount of insight. But when you hear other men saying, this is what I read, this is how I'm, the Lord's working in my life, it is really, really encouraging. So I did that this week. Okay, what kind of weirdo studies calculus? This is, yeah, this is the bizarre one. Um, so it turns out my, uh, my youngest son is uh, in college, and he's taking calculus this summer, and he doesn't need my help. Uh, he's doing great. And, um, and I studied it like three, 30 years ago, three decades ago, and it's like left my mind. So I thought at the beginning of the summer, you know what, I'd like to just crack the book open a little bit and see if I can recover just a little bit. And like, Eddie and I can talk about it just a little bit. And so like this last week, I was reading, I spent like one hour, maybe two, I read about Taylor's series, which was like, they're magnificent. 
what you can do with this mathematics. So I studied calculus. But just a little bit, you know, like, but it was free time. Uh, I watched some Seinfeld. So <clears throat> kind of like back down to earth here. Uh, my, uh, with, also, with my kids home from college, it's like, what, what are we going to watch on TV? Let's watch Seinfeld. You've never seen Seinfeld before. It's kind of a classic. So it's kind of, you know, Jerry and the guys, they're funny. And I thought one of the most striking things about Seinfeld is that it's life before cell phones. And it kind of pops up in all these ways you don't even expect. Uh, I fixed a toilet. Now, is this really leisure or is this work? Um, I put it under leisure because I could have hired someone to do it. And I'm not like super handy, but I can do a few things on, around the house, a few things with the car. And when I can, if it's something I can do, I like to do it myself. Because there's all, plenty of other things I can't do. But this one, I put it under leisure. I enjoyed it. And it's still working, right, guys? Okay, all right. <laughs> all right. So uh, I, I, I'm doing Duolingo. I don't know how many of you do that. I just do it like, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day. We got some Duolingo folks out there. All right. I'm working on French. I'm not that good, but I got a 456-day streak. So, and my wife has like twice that, but anyhow, I work on that. All right. Uh, my daughter and I uh, went to Lowe's, got some succulents, planted them in the backyard. That's really nice. And then, uh, later in the week, we had some friends, over for, some friends from church over for dinner. And there's beautiful people, and uh, they brought their young kids with them. And we got, we got to take out some of the toys that our kids used to play with decade, you know, years ago. And uh, not decades ago, I guess maybe just 10 years ago. And uh, they, you know, seeing the kids play and the men sat out in the backyard uh, with our succulents around us and we got to talk. And it was really, <laughs> it was really, really nice. And then finally, I'm a baseball fan. I didn't have, I, I, I couldn't watch an entire game, but I listened on the radio as I was driving. And, uh, you know, the Angels swept the Yankees. So it was a good week. And uh, so that, there you go. So that's what I did in my free time. So now you have a little better idea of what leisure is, right? So what is leisure? It, it tells you what kind of person I am. I like the things I enjoy. You come up and talk to me about any of these things. I love to talk to you about them. Uh, you can see that it's kind of a mix of things. Like there's entertainment, of course, having fun. There's also some stuff that's, well, there's, you know, like educational. There's also things that are productive. But it's still, there was no obligation. I didn't have to do it. So it's kind of a mix. It kind of depends on who you are. And you see, I'm, I'm, I'm a busy guy, but like all I'm doing is I'm managing blessings. I've got like tons of blessing in my life. So I'm busy with blessing. And one other thing is that if you notice what's missing, if you were to come up to me and say with no context, hey, David, what do you do? I'd probably say I'm a software engineer because that's what I do. That's my job. And I probably spent more time writing code this week than all those things combined. But... What you do in your free time has a, has a way of revealing what kind of person you are in a way that's, that, that work can't do. So, let's go to look at our, the theme verse for our series. It's from Matthew 5.16. Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So today we want to we wanna explore how does our leisure, what we do in our free time, how is it a light that shines before others? How can leisure be a good work? And how does it show, how does it give glory to our Father who is in heaven? So to do this, we're gonna, this is our outline. We're going to look at what freedom is, where freedom comes from, and what good it can do in our lives. So we're going to kind of look at the, the idea of freedom. 
And then we want to zoom in on the life of Jesus and make much of Jesus. What does he teach us about leisure? And then finally draw some application. So let me uh, start us off by asking God's guidance and his blessing on the time. Heavenly Father, we are we're grateful and we're humbled uh, to be here, to be with the body of Christ, encouraging each other, opening your word together. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to not just teach us what Jesus said, but apply it and direct us, Lord, so that we will give glory to you. We ask it. We ask you to do that work. Even this morning, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's start by looking at what freedom is. The Bible says that freedom means, the Bible teaches that freedom is you're unbound, you're released from whatever enslaved you, including the desire to go back to whatever enslaved you. And if that's true, then you're also free to go forward to whatever delights you. So the Bible talks about freedom in both of these directions. Uh, you can remember the, uh, the Hebrew slaves. They were in bondage in uh, Egypt, uh, slaves to Pharaoh. But then they were freed. And then now they're freed to follow the Lord into the promised land. And one of the great tragedies of the story is whenever we read about the people of Israel saying, we, you know, the food was better back there. We want to go back. And it's a reminder to us that their hearts in some way were not, were not freed. They were still in bondage. It's a warning that's for our, written for our good. In Mark 5, Jesus comes across a demoniac. In, uh, he's, he's, in, he's bound in chains in a cemetery. Jesus frees him. He releases him from the, the, the demon, the demon possession, He's freed from his chains, and what does he do? He can go home, and now he can tell other people about how God has been merciful to him. Uh, Galatians 5 says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We're free from the requirements of the Mosaic law. We're also free from the power of sin. And now we're able now to go forward, to walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we were all once slaves to sin. Uh, Whatever sin it is, whether it's like sexual immorality, drunkenness, anger, greed. Uh, Sin is more than just what you do. You do those things, and then it turns out it comes back around and it enslaves you. And you end up being obedient to that very thing. You're mastered by it. And in the end, it leads to your destruction. That's what sin is. Romans Romans 6 argues, now, once once you become freed from sin, you know how destructive that sin was, you were, how joyless you were. You don't want to go back. And if you're freed from sin, freed from its bondage, freed from even the desire to go back, then that means you're free to go forward to what delights you. And that's what Psalm 37 teaches. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So freedom is ultimately a change of heart. It's a change of desires away from what brings death and towards whatever brings life, which is ultimately God himself. And leisure, or free time, is, has a unique ability to expose what's in our heart. So Pastor Rick has taught us uh, many times over about the power, the, the usefulness, the diagnostic feature of anger in our lives. You're, you're living your life, then something happens to you. Somebody ticks you off, and they, they, maybe somebody treats you wrong, and you react. There's an outburst of anger. What does that anger teach you? it teaches you that you had an idol in your heart, right? And it was an idol you didn't know about. It was always there, but now it had an opportunity to be exposed. So, it's, it's, you, you, so you repent of it, but you also learn, ah, Lord, this is what's going on in my heart. 
Leisure has a similar ability. Once you're done with your obligations, what do you want to do? Like, what, what do you actually delight in? What kind of person are you? What, would you like, what kind of person do you want to be? Leisure can do that. So that's what freedom is. Now, where does freedom come from? Uh, uh, turn with me to Psalm 115. It's page 478 in your pew Bible. Psalm 115. <clears throat> and we'll see here that free, the ultimate source of freedom comes from the character of God who is himself free. All right, Psalm, one, Psalm 115, verse 1. <clears throat> not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Just stop right there and think about that. God does whatever he wants, right? He does whatever he pleases him. So how can that be? Uh, well, first of all, he's God, right? He has the power. He has the ability to do whatever he wants. But he also is a person who wants, right? Our God the Father is a, our, our God is a personal being, and God the Father is a person who wants. He has desires. He has pleasures. He has delights, and he freely chooses among them. And just keep reading. Compare this to the idols of the nations. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So compare this to the, the, the idols of the world, right? They're deaf, they're dumb, they're stationary. You've got to carry them around. They don't have pleasures, do they? Right? They don't have free will. They don't have, they're not free beings. They don't choose anything. And uh, uh, G.K. Bill, in a, a book he wrote, uh, the title sums it up, which is, you be, and it's there in verse 8, you become like what you worship. If you worship deaf and dumb idols, you become deaf and dumb yourself. And what are the gods we worship in our modern secular age? We worship the materialism of, that's uh, captured by Darwin. Man is an animal. He emerges from impersonal biology just by natural forces. We worship the class warfare of Marx. Each person is, uh, is caught in this historic struggle between oppressor and oppressed. We worship the psychology of Freud. Man is driven by sexual urges, trauma, traced back to his childhood. I think what underlies all of these things, Darwin, Marx, Freud, all this modern philosophy, is that ultimately man is not free. Right? There's no such thing as free will. He's the product of biology, his society, his brain chemicals, his childhood trauma. And if you worship these gods, then whatever your problems are, they're ultimately outside of you. And so your focus for change is outside of you as well. But that's not true for the Christian, is it? Our God is personal. God the Father is a person who's free. He's created us in his image, and he's created us to be free like he is. That's true. We've, we've made a royal mess of it, right? We've fallen, we've, uh, fallen into sin, and that creates a bondage. But he's freed us from it in Christ. He's set us free. So our focus can be off of our circumstances, Instead, we can focus on what God has done and what he continues to do in our hearts. I think this is especially true for a believer when, uh, when he or she is suffering. When all your circumstances seem to be like 
set up against you. And like you have, no, like you have just a little tiny bit of free time. Even then, if you receive it with gratitude and joy, because you're convinced God's in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases, and he's working all things for my good that's waiting to be revealed. That's a, that gives glory to God. Our God is free, he's the source of our freedom, and whatever freedom we enjoy, it comes from God. So we give him glory for it. Just one more point on the nature of freedom, and that is that freedom helps us grow in unexpected ways. So how we use our freedom can help us grow and mature in ways that's different from work. When you're working, meeting your obligations, you grow, right? You, uh, you, you gain new skills, you learn responsibility, it's good. But when you choose to do something, not because you have to, but simply because you want to, it presents a unique opportunity for growth. And we know this uh, all the time. We, we see this all the time with our children, right? You have young children. You want them to play. You buy them toys. You say, look, I want, I want you to spend time playing. Because as every parent knows, that playtime is growing time, right? They are learning. They're learning how to like, get along with other kids. They're learning how to solve problems, find motor skills. Like, that... that it's really important. I don't think it's fundamentally any different for adults. Like maybe our play is just a little more sophisticated at times, but it's basically playtime that leads to growth and in unexpected ways. So to prove my point, I'm gonna, I, I, I told you I studied calculus this week. I'm gonna double down on this just a tiny bit and think about the history of science. Take it for what it is. In our, our Western civilization, we have enjoyed centuries of freedom and centuries of progress. So we have technology, we have conveniences that are just astounding, right? I, when I think about how to measure it, I think to my grandpa. Yeah, I lived about 100 years ago. About a less, little less than 100 years ago, he was a dairy farmer in northern Minnesota. He had to chop wood by, with, by hand. He had to hand milk cows at you know, 5 a.m. in the morning in the dead of winter. I mean, that was, that was work. And I have so much more free time so, much more, so many more opportunities uh, uh, than he ever had. Where did they come from? Where did, that, where did that progress, especially the technology, where did it come, how did it come about? The, and it, it's not just technology as well. It's also political and economic progress that's led to this. I'd argue that they ultimately come from leisure and not from work. And I'll explain it this way. The mathematicians that came up with the trigonometry and the calculus that allows us to have cell phones and TV screens and cars that work better, when they came up with that mathematics, they had, it was hundreds of years before they knew how any of it was going to be used. Right? They, they did it just for the goodness of it, just for the joy, like, wow, this math works. And it was there's a lot of work that came after that to put that into practice, to actually get that use out of it. But the breakthrough, the insight, came from leisure, just for the goodness of it. What they were ultimately doing was discovering or unlocking the wisdom and glory of God that he built into the universe. So leisure is powerful. I think we can apply this, bring it back to our own personal lives here. What are we going to do? Um, I think we can apply this in our, in our life together as a church, in a ministry that we're all involved in, and uh, you've heard talked about from the pulpit before, which is the ministry of the palm court. 
Right? So some of you are signed up to do, like you're, you volunteer for Awana, or you teach Sunday school, or you, uh, a few weeks ago you heeded the call to, for the, um, the Sunday hos the hospitality ministry to help donate. It's all, those are, that's all good. It's all necessary. But every, morning, every Sunday morning when we walk on the campus, we all have an opportunity to minister to each other by simply talking to each other, taking an interest in each other, saying, look, who, who are you? Uh, I, I haven't seen you here before. Oh, you've been here for 17 years. Oh, sorry. You know, you laugh at yourself. And then you say, well, tell me about yourself. And because it's, it's unscripted, there's no, there's no obligation in it. Because of that, it has a greater significance. This person actually cares about me. So using that leisure, that free time, can lead to our growth, and it can lead to the, it can lead to, uh, the growth and, and betterment of our church. In, in ways that maybe we can un easily underestimate. All right, so we've looked at what freedom is, we've looked at where it comes from, and how it helps us grow. So now, I want to get to, really this is the purpose of our series, we want to make much of Jesus. What does Jesus, his life, his teaching, what does Jesus have to teach us about how we use our free time? And to do this, I came up with a, a little thought experiment I thought to myself, what did Jesus do in his free time? And when I first thought of it, I thought, my, my first reaction was, no, it's like, you, that's a bad question. You can't, like, Jesus was busy, right? It's serious. Like, this is serious work, and it is, right? The if you read the Gospels, the Gospels are serious. They end with the, the death, and then, of course, the resurrection of Christ. So, what does, it, is there such a, did Jesus really have free time? Uh, G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, ends by speculating, did Jesus ever laugh? Gospels don't record Jesus laughing. But we know that Jesus was a man. He was fully man, just like all of us. So he had to have laughed. And he had to have had free time. So, I stuck with the question. And then it turns out that that little verse in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, turned out to be a nice launching off point when it says that Jesus and his disciples did not have leisure even to eat. I thought, ah, maybe there's something here. So then I just spent time thinking about where in, the, where in the Gospels can we see Jesus using his free time? I'd like to propose three passages. First one, turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. So, obviously, this is the beginning of the book of John. In the first chapter, Jesus is introduced, John the Baptist announces him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he starts calling his disciples. Then chapter 2, verse 1, it reads, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right, so Jesus' first miracle. Notice the levels of surprise in the miracle. The master of the feast, he's surprised because they saved the best wine for last after the tipsy guests, you know, really wouldn't know the difference. Uh, The disciples and the unbelieving world are surprised that this man Jesus has this miraculous power. Who can do this? I I think we evangelicals, uh, we're surprised that Jesus is making alcohol. Like, what are you doing? And he's maybe drinking it. Our sensibilities would prefer that Jesus says, ah, there's, the wine has run out? Good. Now, <laughs> now everybody can get a little more level-headed so we can get on to what matters. But instead, Jesus increases the feasting and in this way manifests his glory. What does this mean? Our God has always been a God of feasting, of celebration, of fellowship around the table. When he made Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden, lots of food. When he brought the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt the night before, he established, he instituted a feast, the Passover, and he said, celebrate this every year to remember this. When Jesus instituted the church, he instituted the Lord's Supper, which is the fulfillment of that feast, and he put it at the center of our fellowship. And the culmination of our salvation is another wedding, and there's going to be another feast. So it's really feasting from beginning to end. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm 52, and uh, in the last 10 to maybe 15 years, I think something has changed in our culture's view of food. So it's true we have, like, more food allergies and sensitivities than ever before. We count calories. We reduce fat. We watch uh, carbohydrates. We avoid trans fats, GMOs, dairy, Some avoid gluten, eat local, eat organic. It kind of, it's like, it goes on and on, right? And I'm I'm not saying this is all bad. Like, uh, I eat more salads now and fewer hamburgers. It's it's, uh, good for me. And the guys at the Friday morning Bible study know that I get the avocado toast and not the sausage burrito. So, like, this is all, like, this is all normal. But for the Christian, it's all secondary. It's not the main thing, right? Paul taught us that bodily training is of some value, Training in godliness is of value in every way. So the world sees food kind of reductionistically. Food is fuel. Food is medicine. Uh, And in this way, it kind of reduces food to something eating is almost like a, a, a form of work. But for the Christian, the main thing about food is that food is a gift. And like all gifts, you receive it with gratitude. You receive it with joy. And you look through the gift and you see the character of the giver. God is good. He's kind. He's generous with us. And so we eat with a feasting mentality just like Jesus did. When the new covenant arrived, the old covenant dietary laws were ended. God declared all foods clean. And in Acts 10, uh, God explains to Peter clearly what it means. It means that we should know there's a greater truth, that we should not call any person common or unclean. So in Christ, God tore down the barriers between nations and and made one new people, and we reflect God's attitude, and we learn to love all foods and all people. Just as Paul taught us, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
So when Jesus had leisure to eat, he ate with a feasting mentality. I think it ultimately comes from his delight and confidence in the gospel. Let's go on to another passage here. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, page 816. Luke chapter 10. So I've got it up here as fables, but uh, technically Jesus taught parables and Aesop taught fables, but like it's a really, it's kind of a technical distinction. I really wanted the alliteration, so there you go. We all, we all know that Jesus was a great storyteller, right? He told striking parables. Uh, Jordan used a parable, one of Jesus' parables, uh, to teach us about money. Uh, they, were, they were provocative. They were, they were relevant. Another thing about parables, though, is that they're very inefficient, right? Like, Jesus, just tell us what to do. Tell us what to believe. And, but instead, Jesus would break into a story. I think we see that right here in Luke chapter 10. Uh, go to verse 25. We'll start there. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, uh, a little bit of context. In the first century Judaism, a lawyer is an expert in the Mosaic law. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So right now, Jesus and this lawyer are having a technical discussion, quoting verses, making a logical argument. But the lawyer is not satisfied. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus could have given him, he could have continued the argument, but instead he just, on a dime, turns and says, I got a story for you. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So it's a fabulous story, right? The Good Samaritan. It's, a, it's like a story, everyone in this room knows it, but everyone... In, uh, outside of the church, they know it as well, just by the title alone. So Jesus, the, the story is powerful. Like, the characters are memorable. There's, 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 there's a plot, there's a drama that drives to it. And, and the story's effective as well. The lawyer gets it. Jesus makes his point by telling a story. So now what do we do, this, do with this? How do we make much of Jesus from this? I one application could be, look, we should all be better storytellers. Um, or uh, maybe we could say, look, uh, we should all be reading better quality stories, you know, like more Shakespeare, less Netflix, or something like that. But I'd like to go, uh, take our thought experiment and uh, keep going in this direction. And that is, how did Jesus learn the art of storytelling? Can we learn from this? 
about how Jesus learned the art of storytelling. Luke 2 says that Jesus increased in wisdom. And Hebrews 5 says Jesus learned obedience. So even though Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man. And he learned. John 7 says the Jews marveled at Jesus' learning because he hadn't studied formally. He didn't go to, basically, he didn't go to college. But clearly, he knew the scriptures. He read them. And from child, we know uh, from childhood, when he was 12 years old, he was in the temple conversing with adults on theological topics. I suspect Jesus' mother was a major influence in teaching him. Uh, if you look at Luke chapter 1, uh, when Mary sings her song, it's called the Magnificat. How did Mary sing that, sing that song? How did she know? She knew scripture. She knew, more than just knowing scripture, she knew redemptive history. And when the angel's message came, she understood the significance of it. I think Jesus learned from her. He mastered the art of storytelling. I think it's reasonable to think that he spent time learning to do it well. Learning from his mother, he studied, he surely practiced. The end result is we're still marveling at the impact of his storytelling today. So the, the uh, application I'd like to recommend on this, from Jesus' love of fables of, and of parables, is that whatever we set our minds to, whatever we use, do in our free time, Jesus taught us to do it with excellence. We bring glory to God when we pursue anything, certainly our work, our marriages, but maybe especially when we use our, we use our free time excellently because we're doing it simply because we want to. All right, third and final passage. Go with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. It is page 846 in your pew Bible. One of the things that Jesus taught us, with his, how did Jesus use his free time? as he spent time with his friends. He spent a lot of time with his friends. That three years of ministry, can you imagine the number of campfires, long walks, shared meals? Jesus' strategy was never get the biggest crowd possible and then the kingdom of God will grow. Instead, he, saw, he found a small number of disciples and he invested his life in them. He didn't use them just to get, his, get what he wanted out of them, but he called them friends. We see that here in John 13. I'm just going to skim a few verses here. In, uh, in verse 2, Jesus shares a meal with them. Uh, in verse 5, we see Jesus, after the meal, he humbles himself and washes their feet and serves them. And then right after that, Peter, uh, Peter is trying to understand what the meaning of it is. And basically, Peter just kind of says some really stupid things. And Jesus is patient with them. And we, we see in verse, uh, uh, later in verse 23, Jesus is reclining at the table with them. He's, they're, they're, they're touching each other. Let me read verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He taught them their love for one another was the thing that was going to change the world, and it did. And yet, even after that, like the very next verse... Simon Peter is ready to, he basically gets, it gets revealed that I'm gonna, he's going to end up betraying Jesus. So Jesus is ready to forgive them as well. So when we're given free time, the example and teaching of Jesus is we should spend it with others in a way that's gracious, in a way that blesses them and lives out the gospel to them. This is really opposite of the, the worldly concept of me time. 
don't think you can find me time in the, in the Bible. Sure, certainly there's time you need to be by yourself, rest and recharge. But I think our normal pattern of life should be life together. Whatever free time we have, we should routinely use it to benefit others, to enjoy life with others, and be a blessing to them. When we find our life, those who would seek their own life will lose it. Whatever loses their life, uh, for, for the gospel's sake, will find it. So we need to wrap this up here. I'd like to take just a minute to think about how to apply this. We've had these passages, examples from Jesus, how he uses leisure, what, he, what, uh, uh, what, what we can learn from his life about leisure. How do we make this work in our lives today, like right where we're at? So if you go, I want to just briefly go back to that first idea of how, how radical the idea of freedom is. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. If you're set free from sin, the, even the desire to go back to the bondage of sin, that means you're free to go forward to whatever delights you. And I think a lot of times we think, look, I get that, that I'm free, but just tell me what I'm supposed to do, right? Like this, like tell me what I have to do. And I think, but the concept of leisure is that's you have to choose in order to grow. Part of our maturity in Christ is you've been given freedom. Now you, you need to choose. And in that way, you're going to grow. I'm going to try to take this little idea and apply it to a difficult test. See if this thing works. Imagine you're a young man who loves to play video games. That's, you can imagine it. Okay, this young man, how many times has he heard from his mother, from his teachers, you ought to play less video games, right? You should do all these other things that are better than video games. And the young man replies, he says, look, yeah, I, I get it. I, you know, I, uh, I go to church, um, I read my Bible uh, some, not as much as you, but I do some, and um, I, uh, I do my schoolwork, and, or uh, I, I've got a job, I pay the rent, and now with the extra time I have, you know what I really want to do? I want to play video games. It's what I want to do. How are we going to apply this here? How do we make much of Jesus? It'd be really easy for me to say, you ought to play less video games and you ought to fill in, right? It's kind of our reflex. I think the application for this is that you ought to play video games. It's what you want to do. And yet, as a Christian, I think Jesus' example gives us guidance about how to play video games. Let me try this out. Just like Jesus feasted at the wedding of Cana, you ought to play with joy. You ought to play with gratitude in your heart. God gave me this Xbox. He gave me this awesome bandwidth. It's easy. If bitter, if, if envy or anger comes up in your heart, it's time, it got revealed. It's time to repent of it. Stay joyful. Just like Jesus mastered the art of storytelling, I think you need to master that first-person shooter. Like, do your best. It seems odd, but when God says, do everything as unto the Lord, I think we, do, we can do it for the glory of God. Just like Jesus loved his friends, we ought to love those we're playing with. As you're a Christian, you know selfish ambition is joyless. And also playing games by yourself is not very fun. So play with, get some, get some buddies. Play with them. 
and care about them. Like, learn about them and spend time with them. If you do this with all your heart to the glory of God, I think God does good things in your life. And it likely leads to playing games less. Not because someone told you you ought to, but because you grow. And you want more than what those games can provide. But the important thing is, you get to discover that yourself. So, my wife and I, I, I said we go dancing. It's, we have fun doing it. Is there a Christian way to dance? I think there is. I, 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 was, I, I think I can apply these same lessons to how Leanne and I dance. So first, we dance with gratitude and with joy. Now you think, well, come on, that's, of course you're going to do that. The only reason to go dancing is to have fun. It's amazing what gets revealed in your heart as you get out on the dance floor. Like, you, fear. Uh, uh, you can get angry at your dance partner, actually. <laughs> um, frustration. What do you do? You say, ah, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to laugh at my mistakes. And I'm going to keep on dancing. I'm going to do it with gratitude and joy. Second, we, uh, just like uh, Jesus worked at his storytelling, we work at our dancing. We do it with skill. We do it with all of our heart. It's not because I'm going to be the great dancer. It's like, it's not going to happen. I'm, but, I, but whatever I do, I do it as unto the Lord. And third, you dance with love for others because it's just not about me. I want my wife to have a good time. Uh, it turns out if you go dancing, you get paired up with other people. It's actually really a good way to learn how to dance. You care about the other person. You get to know them just a little bit. It, ma- it, it makes it not just more enjoyable, but also more meaningful. And Leanne and I have found that we've been married 29 years now. And, uh, you know, if, if you're having some marriage difficulties, we all have them, you want some help, you absolutely should go to the counsel- uh, uh, coffee and conversations, get some counseling from God's word, and then go dancing. Because <laughs> it like, it will just, woo, all these things will get revealed. Then you work on them. You do it for the glory of God. So now what will you do in your free time? You get to choose. I'm, I'm, you don't get to be told, this is what you ought to do. Your list of 10 things, it's going to be very different than mine. It's going to be a mix of some things are going to be fun, some things are going to be a little bit like work, but you want to do them. Some things will be productive or educational. You get to choose what kind of person you are. If you're a wife and a mother, how you enjoy life, whatever slices of free time you're given in that like, most demanding of roles, it can be a massive blessing to your husband and your kids. Your kids are, most, are more likely to remember what you enjoyed than re- to remember what you tell them they ought to enjoy. If you're a young person, you probably have a good amount of time, and you're also blessed with energy. So I think the, G- the example of Jesus is that you should have ambition to do something with it. Enjoy life, master some new skills, bless others with it. I think those are the three, that, that is, those are the three passages we read. If you're an older person and you have uh, some newfound free time, but you don't have the youthful energy, you can, you're, in a great, you're in an ideal position to use it wisely. Whatever we accomplish now, however we bless those around us, however we learn and grow, we take it with us into eternity. So let's end by looking back at Matthew 5.16. Leisure is a light. It's a light that shines before others because it shows the reality of the gospel. It shows the character of God. This is who God is. This is who he made us to be. 
as I'm delighting in him, as I'm working at mastering the skill just because I want to, as I'm blessing those around me, I'm showing the world who God is. It's a good work when we follow the example of Jesus. And in all these ways, we show the beauty of Christ to the world, we build up the church, and we show the power and hope of the gospel, and we give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are reminded of how good and generous you have been to us. You have filled our life with blessing. Lord, you are a, you are a God who, is, who, who has delights, and you delight to free us from our sin and to allow us to pursue you and to pursue whatever is in our heart. Lord, we pray that you would direct our hearts to what's really true and good and beautiful, and this would be glorifying to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.